Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor William Fuchs, who is Professor of Finance at the University of Texas. His research focuses on situations with a poor contractual environment due to asymmetric information or lack of formal enforcement. He studies how repeated interactions or policies can be used to partially overcome the underlying frictions. Welcome, Bill. Hi, welcome. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So um, the topic of our conversation today is, is the paper that you have entitled Optimal Arrangements for Distribution in Developing Markets, Theory and Evidence, uh, in which you say large literature examines demand-side barriers to product adoption. Uh, and in this uh, paper, you examine supply-side barriers in a, in a setting with a limited contract enforcement. Um, and I know that you have a, a field study here from Uganda, but before we get into the details of that, um, could you talk a bit about the motivation of this and why side barriers exist, especially in developing markets? Yes, so actually this is kind of an interesting story to, to how this paper came about that, that helps explain this uh, to some extent, which is um, one of the co-authors, uh, uh, so this is joint work with Brett Green and, and David Levine. And uh, so David had, had done some prior work in Uganda where basically they, they studied sort of the demand side of the problem. Uh, what they did is they, they, they went house to house. Uh, they were sort of pretending themselves to be the salespersons, uh, and they were doing this with uh, these more efficient cook stoves uh, that you know burn less, uh, you know need less less fuel, and, and are also cleaner. And and so basically, what what they studied in their prior work was how offering uh, a payment with installments and and the right to return. Um, the good if, if the consumers didn't like it, how that increased adoption significantly. Okay. Yeah. 
so so he was he told us about this and and he had some ideas wanted to do this more more broadly outside he so his work was in Kampala the capital of Uganda and he wanted to do some work on on the countryside and and you know he faced a lot of problems of actually how to pretend to be the salesperson how to manage a team etc to to go and and do this work and 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 so he, he mentioned this to Brad and I and and we started thinking about it and and then we realized that there's, there's sort of this interesting problem and and this interesting question is if if this was so profitable as as David had had seemed to uncover in his study right if this were such a good thing to do to offer credit and, and the right to return why is it that vendors are not doing it themselves yeah and 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 basically part of the issue is that if you think about especially once you go to to rural areas the you know the the vendor right the salesperson is is really not very different than any other person in the village and and they don't have deep pockets so in the same way that you know the random villager cannot you know afford to buy these things up front because they don't have enough cash the the salesperson also doesn't have enough you know working capital uh to provide credit and you know and collect over time so so the the cost of distribution, there is nobody to really step in and do the distribution? No, so, so, so this, I mean, there's two issues also when you think about, I mean, this is, has to do more with the, the fact that the, the local person doesn't have, um, you know, this, this, this deep pockets to be able to provide credit themselves. So, and, and so that's kind of the friction on the supply side that I cannot, you know, I cannot supply this credit and I cannot, you know, maybe allow the person to have the right return because I cannot afford the risk that that might, you know, be embedded in that for myself. And so then you think about, okay, what about somebody maybe from the city doing this? And then the problem is obviously they have to deal with the distance, with a lack of, of local knowledge, and, and, and somehow they have to incentivize an employee to do this work for them. Um, so, so that's, that's, you know, one side of the motivation for this project is to see, okay, if we were, you know, uh, and we partnered actually with, with BRAC, which is a large nonprofit and, and BRAC had these, um, I think they call it community health providers. So uh, it's all women actually. And, and what they did is they sold, uh, low ticket items, uh, you know, some hygiene products maybe malaria pills and, and, and small small things like that. And the idea was try to see if we could use this network of people and, and some better contracts to start selling uh, larger ticket items that could have big value for for the you know the consumers, for the villagers. Uh, so examples of that are these efficient cook stoves or or the solar lights, solar power lights like we used in the experiment. So, so I want to understand this, uh, Bill. So, um, is the problem that the supplier de uh, does not have sufficient financial uh, backing, nor have access to credit lines, and hence they can't really supply it to the to the consumer? Well, they, they could supply it on a cash basis, right? So, so if I'm a local yeah. villager, uh, you know, and I run the local shop, right? These community health providers. They might be able to buy, you know, one solar light at a time, and and, and sell it 
uh, and once they get paid in full, they can go and buy another one. But they cannot, you know, they cannot sell five solar lights with credit because they don't have the money to provide, in a sense, that credit. They they need the cash up front to buy the lights. So so the yeah. idea is maybe we can provide credit, you know, working capital to these vendors and with the hope that they would then be able to sell with credit and we sort of instructed them to try to do that and, and that way sort of create a, a credit chain right by where we would give credit we were pretending to be like the big city supplier and yeah. and so we would give credit to to the small retailer in the villages and and hope that this small retailer would then give credit to the final consumer that that was kind of the idea so, so the vendors here are intermediaries, and uh, they, it's because they don't have access to credit, they can't really scale up. They have to go one by one uh, sort of thing. But why wouldn't the manufacturer go direct to consumer in this market? Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that the, you know, uh, it's sort of you know hard to have that reach. And then if you were the manufacturer, then you have to worry about the incentives and worry about collecting. And, you know, it, it's not that easy to, you know, there's no enforcement uh, or, or very little sort of form, formal enforcement uh, you can do. And, and so it's, it's not easy if, uh, you know, if some firm in, in, you know, in Kampala wants to sell lights in, in, in a rural place, how do they get you know, things to get paid and, and collect and, you know, all of those things. There's a big advantage of having a local person sort of doing this 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 work for them. But uh, if you say the local person, the vendor himself or herself is sort of similar to the consumer, mm -hmm. uh, would, would, would that, how does that enhance the sort of the contract enforcement for the manufacturer? Well, okay, so here's the key. So the the manufacturer, so even though the manufacturer has like a one-time relationship, if it were directly to deal with clients, right? Think of the client, it, it, you know, it would be very infrequent relationship versus it would have a very frequent relationship with the intermediary because the intermediary is selling all the lights. So, yeah. so the whole point of, of sort of our paper and, you know, we have a big theoretical side to our work is, is how can you design a, an incentive scheme you know, a working arrangement between the manufacturer and the local vendor so that the local vendor actually has incentives to repay its debts and, and you know, to use the working capital wisely and not just run away, uh, which is the big yes. consideration here. So, so the structurally, the manufacturer needs the vendors, but unfortunately, the vendors are not in a position to really scale up. Um, you know they, they don't have access to credit lines and so on so it is uh, it is inefficient in terms of getting the product to the consumer right so 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 the, the paper is about uh, sort of having a, some kind of a contractual and financial uh, solution to it yes ba basically what, what we propose is um, and we find a relatively simple arrangement which is the manufacturer essentially has to give something that looks like working capital. Um, so, so basically, I, I'm I'm providing you know the lights in advance, and, and I'm, I'm not asking for any payment in advance. 
which yeah. obviously it exposes the manufacturer to to the threat that these these local vendors just run away but that's also you know but that's how why is it that these guys are not supposed to run away is because there's sort of a promise that you can grow with me and make more future profits if, if you don't run away and so that growth opportunity is what's sort of supposed to discipline the relationship so i don't want to run away because i know that you know today i sell one light but i come back i can use those profits i reinvest tomorrow i can sell two and so on and and then over time i'm going to be able to make uh more money and that's what's more tempting than just running away today with one light or two lights to start with. Yeah, so that's so interesting. So, uh, I mean, the fundamental issue here is that in a developing market, you don't have contract enforcement. So essentially you have to come up with a way to, a way to do this uh, and reduce the probability that the intermediary takes advantage of you or, or uh, run away from it. Um, and so, 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 um, do you want to talk about the Uganda field study and, um, and talk about exactly what? Yes. So, so basically what we did is, so we used, um, solar lights, as I was alluding to before, as our sort of expensive good, uh, that we were going to test the theory with. And so the idea is these lights cost about, you know, $25 or so. Uh, these are solar, solar. These are lights. solar power lights. So it's basically a small solar panel, maybe ten inches uh, square or something like that, and then a, a one single light. That's what we use for for our experiment. Actually, it was interesting yeah. to, as a learning experience for myself, is that when we were you know testing or you know asking the potential clients and vendors what what type of lights they wanted and what they you know what what was in demand, it turned out that Another important feature is that the lights we used could could charge cell phones. Okay, so these local villagers don't have electricity, but in many cases, actually, they have cell phones, and uh, and they actually have to walk sometimes for an hour or so into a town to be able to charge their phone and pay for that. So having the the light also charge their phones uh, was an additional value. And, and what's remarkable is is the economics of this. Um, Right, because the what basically we're replacing is a kerosene lantern, and so you know your average household's spending at the time about a dollar fifty to two dollars on on just a week on 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 kerosene uh, for the lantern, uh, in addition to uh, potentially some money to charge a cell phone, and and this and this light that replaces that right costs about twenty five dollars. Okay, so so in about ten to you know twelve weeks, you pay for for the light, and and then the light lasts about two years. You know, slowly the battery starts degrading, but but you have a lot, about two years worth of, of of the product. So so it's a huge return on investment. Okay, the problem is that most households don't have those twenty five dollars, you know, to make the upfront payment. Okay, so so what we did in the experiment is we we wanted to so we contracted with with these vendors that were part of the BRAC, net, BRAC network, uh, and yeah. and then we randomized and basically we did three um, orthogonal randomizations. 
So one of the randomizations was whether we were giving credit or not. Okay, so we would give it an initial couple of lights uh, as, as credit as initial working capital, or, or we were just offering them cash as sort of business as usual. Then the other randomization was we were giving the vendors themselves the right to return any unsold inventory. We wanted to take sort of the risk away from them if that was an issue. And, and then the third, um, the third treatment that we also considered was giving them like an extra light. So you can think of this as almost like a little bit extra credit, if you will. But this extra light, we instructed them specifically to use it as as a, as a sales mechanism, as a loaner light. So, so the idea is that they, you know, they would go to a household with a light charge, leave it for one evening or something like that, and then you know try to make the sale the next day. It's kind of a sample product. And and so then we we tested over we saw over time how these different groups of of salespeople did did, and 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 obviously we had a control group which you know. It's just business as usual, no credit, uh, no right to return, and no loan, no loaner or experimental light. And so basically, we're in the control group. We only got, you know, around one one light worth of sales. Okay, so they basically bought the first light, maybe two lights, and and that was it. Uh, once we, you know, those that got credit, an initial credit, um, were around seven lights that they were selling. And once you introduce the credit uh, plus the loaner light, we were up to close to 16, 17 lights. Okay, so it's a huge, and these are statistically significant differences. It, it turns out that the right to return didn't didn't matter too much, but the other two it mattered quite a bit. Uh, so you go from about one to two lights to around 16, 17 lights. So, so it's a huge impact in terms of, you know, sales that you can have by offering this more efficient contract. Yeah, so this is a situation where um, the supply chain is really choked because of uh, because of capital constraints. Um, but I wondered, Will, you know, if, so this is a market failure. Um, if this is well understood, couldn't the government step in and correct this failure? Um, it's not that easy. I mean, uh, I guess the government could try to do some lending schemes, right? Some credit schemes. Uh, I mean, that could be more useful for other things as well. Um, but that always has, has its own, you know, problems or difficulties. Um, yeah. what's interesting is, uh, actually there's, there's some pretty recent, uh, uh, developments, we, we found out some of these as actually we were finishing writing our paper uh, of firms that, that are using new technology as a way to sort of circumvent some of the problems. Um, so in particular, this is now, uh, um, you know, as, as cell phone technology is getting cheaper and cheaper and there's more penetration of, of cell phones, uh, there are those firms that implement what I would call a, a pay-as-you-go system. So, so basically, uh, what they can do is they can essentially remotely shut off your light. 
Okay, so this is very similar now to think about like a utility in the U.S., right? So, so suppose you, you don't pay your electricity bill, you know, it gets cut off, right? So, so this is similar uh, in the sense that, you know, if you don't pay your weekly installment for, for the solar lights or the solar panels, uh, then they basically, you cannot use it, right? They, they have a way to, you know, electronically disable the system so that if you don't pay, you don't get any use out of it. Um, yeah. So, and, and I think the, these companies are, are, are being uh, actually quite quite successful. Uh, and they're, I mean, their systems they usually use are, are a bit more expensive because you have to justify this extra technology. So, so they're slightly larger systems, uh, but but they're having uh, they're having success. And and again, the key to have to the success is is finding a, a smart way to overcome this temptation to default. Right. So so now if you default and you don't pay on the system. You really get nothing in return. Um, yeah, yeah, sort of a financial intermediation, right? So, so, so I was thinking uh, it costs twenty five dollars. The cost of the alternative is dollar fifty per week. So, like you say, in three months you get your money back. So you could you could have a system where you know suppose suppose you sell this at a dollar per week. Um, from the consumer's perspective, it is it is really good, right? Uh, they're saving fifty cents per week, um, but you're going to get it paid off in uh, in five six months, and from that point on, you have free cash flow. Yeah, yeah, that that's I mean, in a sense, that's the basis of our of 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 our idea is that uh, indeed what we told the vendors is look charge charge the final consumer uh, basically the dollar fifty that they were supposed to spend on kerosene this week, just tell them, you know, that money that you're going to save, instead of spending it in kerosene, uh, give it back to me and, uh, you know, pay it, pay it to me as, as an installment for the system. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I was I was just thinking that the problem appears very intuitive. Uh, the solution appears very intuitive. There appears to be different ways to solve this problem. Um, physical intermediaries getting credits or some sort of financial intermediary that works like a utility. Um, so given that this information is there, why is it? Why isn't? Why hasn't it happened? Is there some sort of an information gap? The consumers. Do the consumers know such uh, products exist? Uh, in the market? Well, that's also uh, an, an important issue. Uh, I mean, consumers, I think they um, they're not familiar, at least with with this the solar lights. You know, at the time we were doing this this project, they were not very familiar with it. Uh, like, for example, you know, one of the big issues with the kerosene lanterns, right, is the the risk of fire, right? That they're a hot thing, right? That they're, they're powered by a flame. So one of the things that you know the, yeah. the, the consumers were extremely surprised is then you know when when you know we were doing the demonstrations and and somebody would would, would touch the light and it's cold or you know relatively cold. They were like you know, they couldn't believe it. Uh, so so certainly they they don't know. They're not familiar with the product. Another important problem is that there's a lot of sort of fake products, a lot of, you know, uh, crappy imitation type products. Um, so a lot of things are, are being sold that, you know, are supposed to be solar power lights, but they're anything but that. 
And and so, for example, it's kind yeah. of an, an interesting anecdote. Uh, and, and and for some reason, the, the Chinese products are, are, are believed to be bad in particular, and, and this is at least in Uganda. So it's kind of funny because the uh, the box, uh, you know, were of the light where we, we were working with barefoot power and the boxes of, of their lights, you know, have pre very prominently, it says, designed in, in Australia. Um, and then it says made in PRC, very small, rather than, yeah. rather than China. They say PRC, right, for People's Republic of China. Uh, so, 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 you know, uh, and, and this is a problem that the World Bank is also very conscious about. So they, they know this is a big issue. And uh, there was an effort at the time. I don't know how successful this has been, but there was an effort at the time of trying to sort of certify the quality of some of these goods, right? In the same way we, we put credit ratings to companies, right? Trying to have some sort of credit rating or, you know, quality rating for, for solar lights, especially, you know, in operation in the field, um, a seal of approval. Uh, but again, you know, the imitators, the fakers are always, you know, obviously trying to fake the seal of approval as well. So it's not an easy uh, thing to do. and. You know, reputation is very important. So one of the, I think one of the reasons we didn't face as much problem with this is because we were working uh, with BRAC and and so their community health providers trusted BRAC. So they knew, they knew we were not giving them you know fake products to sell. Um, but I think in reality, if you, if you want to you know just show up in the market and nobody knows you, uh, I think that would be an important barrier to overcome as well. Yeah. So, so you have a model, uh, Will, in the paper. Um, you, you talk about an NGO stepping into this market and what could be the NGO strategy with the vendor in a multi-period game. You want to talk a bit about what, um, what, what you do? Yeah, so, so one, one thing that's interesting, so in the paper, um, we, we show that, you know, uh, a lot of our analysis is thinking of a credit maximizing firm. So if I'm the, you know, the distributor from the big town, I just want to maximize my, my profits. Uh, but, but it turns out that the, the problem is, is isomorphic. It's essentially the same. If you think about an NGO that just wants to do good and you know, assume that doing good is maximizing adoption, right? So if I have the objective to maximize adoption, and, and I have a fixed budget, right? Let's say I have a, you know, a million dollars for, for this uh, to try to sell, to sorry, to get as many solar lights as I can in the field. What we point out is that you might actually be better off uh, using sort of this market mechanism, providing credit. So maybe subsidize the solar lights. I'm not, you know, you might need to subsidize them a bit or you, you know, but try to collect at least some of the money back. And, and you know, because that's gonna, make your dollars go further than if you simply, you know, use your million dollars to buy, I don't know, 40,000 lights or whatever the right accounting is, and, and just sort of give them out for free in the market. Um, and, and furthermore, actually, um, I think using sort of a more market-based mechanism and at least trying to collect some money from, from the final consumers has two benefits. Not only you know, uh, not only you're going to reach more consumers eventually. Um, also, 
there's there's a problem in, in a lot of markets in, in Africa. Um, so, for example, the market for um, mosquito nets is, is completely screwed yeah. up uh, because people have come to expect that every so often some NGO will come with free uh, bed nets. So nobody wants to, you know, be a bed net salesperson or bed net repairman, or, you know, because basically the, this, the market got, got really distorted by, by the presence of, of these NGOs that, you know, give bed nets for free. Um, so, so that's a bit of a problem, especially when you think about a market that maybe needs to have repairs and things like that, like the solar lights. Um, another problem is, uh, or another thing that at least you, you hear stories about this. I, I don't know for a fact how, you know, how big of a problem this is. I don't know if somebody has measured it correctly, but from, for example, with the, with the bat nets, you hear stories of people using the bed nets as, as fishing nets or, you know, decoration rather than, than actual bed nets, yeah. uh, mosquito bed nets, right? Because the product is given for free. And so it's kind of random if you get it or not. And, and then you basically sometimes have people that don't really need it or don't really want it for that use if they get the product. Whereas if you have to actually pay something for the product, even if it's subsidized, but you have to pay a positive amount for it, then uh, then you would get the people that are more likely to actually use it for its intended use uh, to use the product, to buy the product in the first place. So, so I, I think there's some value uh, in, in trying to use this sort of more market-based mechanism as well. Yeah, I think this is a very important point, right? So um, going back to the light problem, um, the, the issue there is the intermediaries are not really developed. They're not financially capable. And so if you have any situation where an NGO is dumping product at zero cost, uh, then you won't be able to create a, a robust intermediary at any point because they will have no incentive to enter this market and build up uh, yeah, yeah. Business, no indeed right? that, that was that, that was the, that that's I think an issue and 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 when we were talking with uh, we, when we were in discussions with Brack and thinking about you know which products we would choose you know they they basically told us no let's not do solar lights because we won't get the vendors to want to carry that and have inventory and that and things like that because of these problems um And, and I guess the vendors get conditioned. Uh, so the uh, the mosquito nets, uh, I know that there were very uh, many foundations active in Africa with uh, mosquito nets. And if they occasionally go in and dump uh, mosquito nets at zero cost, you, you won't get the sort of the broad adoption that you're looking for, right? Um, and so I suspect this is happening in many markets. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if if you have enough money to cover the market for completely, it's okay. But if you you know if if it's in this intermediate point where you 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 know it's large enough that you come to distort the market, but not large enough to cover the whole market, uh, it it can sort of uh, stifle the the local entrepreneurs from from sort of providing that, and 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 that can be in the long run somewhat problematic, I think. Um, yeah, and the other thing that you talk about in the paper I found very interesting is that uh, because of lack of contracts and enforcement, 
um, the NGO's optimum strategy appears to be, it, it's a multi-period game. So the, the vendors have to sort of have a long-term profit expectation from playing the game. So uh, if I understand this correctly, well, uh, the optimum strategy appears to be sort of start slow Yes. So, so the idea is again, you, you're you're trying to entice the vendors from not walking away, and and the way to sort of entice them is is is, is with future growth, and also, yeah. and and the reason to start small uh, is that you know if if you realize, look, think think of it this way. The easiest way to think about it is. There, there's some sort of some pie to be made in this market, right? So, so, you know, if we go to village A, we can, you know, in the long run, make so much money, right? Now, yeah, the the size of the pie is going to be larger the faster we can cover the market, right? So, if we start larger, the pie is going to be bigger, right? In, in present terms, we, we're going to be able to cover the whole market faster, so we're going to make a, a bigger pie. Okay, so that that's kind of an incentive to yeah. start larger rather than smaller. Is if I give you more credit today, we can cover the whole market sooner. We'll, um, we're, we're going to recover the profit sooner. So so that's a bigger return in, in or you know, bigger net present value, if you will. So a bigger pie. Now, but counter counter to that or, or or waiting against that is the fact that you have to realize that whatever I'm giving you, or I'm giving the vendor as initial credit right whatever initial amount of lights i give that vendor that's essentially money this vendor can walk away with right so if i'm starting bigger that means that the share of the surplus that that goes to this local vendor has to be larger and so this kind of this trade-off from the perspective of the big firm of okay, I can have a bigger pie, but then I'm going to have a smaller share of the bigger pie. So, so partly the decision of how large to start has to do with, with that trade-off. Um, there's an additional benefit we we haven't molded explicitly in the paper, but this there's an additional benefit of of starting more small, which is uh, if you think about it, you know there can be some heterogeneity in terms of the vendors. So there can be some. Uh, and again, this is was not a big issue for us because we already had some sort of relationship with these vendors through BRAC. But if you think about randomly recruiting vendors, yeah. right, there's some chance that you get some sort of crooks that are they're literally into for just trying to make the fast, you know, the fast dollar. And so by starting small, you also have the ability to potentially sort of uh, separate these two groups and hopefully, you know, some of those that are going to steal from you, okay, they'll steal, but they'll, they'll just go away quick and, and you you won't lose as much as if you had started large with everybody. So so there's also this sort of, uh, you know, testing the waters kind of thing that that's, is an advantage from starting small too. Yeah, so when you have a lot of uncertainty, you can, you can essentially get information uh, by by running multiple experiments as well. Yeah. Right? Uh, I know that you have other similar studies going on in Latin America, and, and you haven't written papers around that yet. You want to talk a bit about what you're yes, finding in Latin so, America? Yes. Uh, well, we don't have findings yet. Uh, we were actually in the we were running our study when when we got hit by by the COVID, so we had to put everything on hold, and we just relaunched it. 
But basically, um, we were studying a, a somewhat related theme, which has to do with um, with repeated credit and access to credit. And so we're, we're working with a bank in, in Bolivia, for example, and we're studying two things with them. One is we're trying to motivate better repayment uh, by you know, offering the access to, to better credit terms in the future. And then we also want to study with them the complementarities between credit and, and training. So we want to, you know, we're going to train and provide some, some sort of training services to, to part of the clients and, and try to see, uh, you know, how that impacts the firms and, and the, you know, the repayments that they subsequently make. And, and again, the, the spirit, um, is, is similar in, you know, that in the case in, in, in Uganda, in the sense that what, what I would like to do with these studies is, is find things that are, uh, self-sustaining, you know, profitable, you know, I, I want to be able to show, you know, if it works, you know, maybe it doesn't, but if it works, I would like to show, you know, this bank or other banks, you know, ways in which you can improve the business with, with sort of win-wins that, that don't need subsidies, right? So, so if, you know, if we can find things, if it's worth training your clients, right, you should do it, right? Uh, um, one thing that's that's sort of interesting, you know, there's a lot of papers in, in economics that 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 study, you know, the impact of, of training and, and, and stuff on, on, on firm outcomes. And 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 one of the questions is, you know, is, is there a is it a good return for investment, right? Would a firm like a bank, you know, especially if there are important complementarities, want to set up trainings, and and, and would that be sort of profitable yeah. for them to do? So so that's part of the the spirit of the question. Yeah, the, the 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 idea that things have to be self-sustaining uh, appears to be very important, right? So, when NGOs think about these problems, when governments or private-public partnerships, uh, there appear to be some sort of an optimum strategy that is really focused on self-sustenance rather than just sort of tactically solve the problem by dumping products at the zero cost. Yeah, you know. Again, I think there might be instances where you know the the dumping strategy could could be good, but uh, especially if you if you think about situations that have a huge scale, right? I mean, we have such a large fraction of the developing world that that depend on on kerosene lanterns, for example, or you know inefficient cook stoves. That I think if if we want to solve a lot of these problems, we need to figure ways in which we can get private firms to 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 do this in in a way again that's not terribly costly that it's you know some small profits can be made so that they fill this void um and so so that's you know that that's my hope obviously you know there's there's clearly always going to be roles for ngos to do stuff and you know and, and i think also showing the way right so so if you could study or you know introduce people to these new products you know it's very hard to start and enter a new market with a brand new product. So, so I think there's, there's obviously a lot of roles for NGOs to play anyway. Uh, but I think there's yeah. potentially more efficient ways for them to you know, succeed in their mission than, than some of the things we see out there. 
Yeah, so so I want to close with, I want to get your perspective on this. So in the paper, you say it's slightly dated data, but it is roughly, roughly the same. Uh, the International Energy Agency reports that over 1.3 billion people lack access to electricity from 2011, this data, and 2.7 billion cook over an open flame, 2.7 billion. Um, and you say the negative health impacts are sobering. Uh, United Nations Development Program and World Health Organization report that 1.6 million deaths per year in developing countries are caused by the indoor air pollution attributed to traditional fuels. So, I mean, this is not a small problem. And it appears that it's pretty well, well known. Uh, and it's a large problem. So, so, so in conclusion, well, if you take a problem like that, how do you think the world could solve something like this? What would be the best way to do um, Well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people working on this and, you know, a lot of people coming up with, with different uh, ideas or, 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 you know, ways to attack it. And uh, and also, I, I don't think there's, there's sort of one, necessarily one unique solution. Uh, you know, another thing you realize is that there's, there's, you know, a lot of idiosyncrasies, right? So what work, might work in one country might not work in another. Uh, you know, there's a lot of entrenched interest in some case, you know, somebody's selling the kerosene today, right? So if you're going to displace that person, you know, yeah. uh, that's something to be worried about, right? Who, who's doing that, for example? Uh, but but as you say, the, the problem is, is, is sobering. So one statistic actually that, that uh, always stuck with me when I was stark, uh, it was really stark when I read it was that, uh, especially children, uh, you know, indoor air pollution uh, is, is a big, very big problem. And, and children and women are, are the most affected. And, and they estimate that it's like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. So, so, so it's something that really needs to be improved. Uh, and again, you know, sometimes it comes from, from better design, right? So, so coming up with better products, be it like these more efficient cook stoves, the solar lights that keep on getting better and better, right? So the economics are improving on, on a lot of these products. Uh, you know, new technology like like having, uh, you know, these this ability to have a kill switch opens new sort of business plans, if you will, ways to do business. Um, and I think you, you have, you know, also to think about the role of the government, how they embrace new, you know, uh, new technologies, how how they embrace new ways of doing business. Like, for example, in the U.S., you know, if you thought about giving me credit uh, based on my paying my, my utility bill, right, that's not something that would be seen as, as, as yeah. kosher, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to have people be shut off of their electricity because they didn't, you know, they didn't repay some loan. Uh, it might be hard to get that through. I think in some places, might, you know, some places might be legal, some places not. Uh, and 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 to some to a large extent, this is how how this is working uh, in, in you know in this, with these pay-as-you-go systems. And it's also interesting that you can sort of repurpose the collateral, right? Once you paid for the system, you maybe can get another loan based on on that night and and you know and and really you know uh, use this collateral uh, for for future things and more investments. Um, but I think it'll take a combination of, of you know, in, you know, new products, new ways to do business. There's clearly a role for the government try to control the, you know, fake products, uh, inform the consumers, right? Getting the consumers to understand that these products are good, uh, 
and they work. Um, yeah, it, it's you know, it's it's a difficult problem. We're just taking a small part of it. Yeah, it's yeah, and and the connection to healthcare costs. So, whoever is holding the healthcare costs downstream uh, has a great incentive to proactively intervene. Uh, in situations like this, right? Um, and uh, I, I, do, I, I think um, that entity is likely. Uh, yes, although, you know, a lot of these, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, rural consumers in poor countries don't get, you know, necessarily much, much in terms of, of public health care, right? Uh, so you know if some of these kids grow up to to get lung cancer you know it's not like they're gonna really get great treatment for it and uh, so so we really want to uh avoid that uh from the start and and that also opens another issue that, that i think is worth pointing out which is you know even the consumers sometimes are not that aware of, of the health ramifications and you know the health consequences right so Will you understand as a you know rural Ugandan that you know twenty years down the line you had this problem because you were cooking on an open flame when you were young? Um, it's it's not that obvious. And for example, that was not something we stressed as much when we were selling the lights because we realized that was something they were not internalizing. Mm -hmm. uh, they could relate to the fires and the risk yeah. of you know having their family burn. Obviously, that's very present. But but something that's sort of slow building it's much harder to convey the urgency of change in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been- Thank you, Jill, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for spending time with me. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.